Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of All Things Marilyn. My name is Scott Fortner, Marilyn Monroe historian, collector, and owner of the Marilyn Monroe Collection. And I'm Elisa Jordan. I'm the founder of LA Woman Tours. I'm an author, and I am also a Marilyn Monroe historian. We are season two, episode two, and Elisa, guess what we're going to do? What? We're going to tussle with Russell. <laughs> Ready? I love her. Why don't you introduce our special guest today? Well, I'm excited. For those of you who have seen Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is the ultimate girl buddy movie. This is the movie I started my Maryland journey with. And today we have with us Christina Rice, author of Mean, Moody, Magnificent, Jane Russell, and the Marketing of a Hollywood Legend. So, Christina, welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. That was the best intro for Jane of any podcast I've been interviewed for. So, thank you. Thank you for driving. Oh, that. thank you. Yes. Tussle with Russell is yes. the best. So, thank Thanks you. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you next time for All Things Maryland. <laughs> so, let's tell the audience a little bit about you. You are a writer, librarian, an archivist who was born and bred in the greater Los Angeles area. You majored in film at Cal State Fullerton. And for those who aren't from the area, we have several Cal State schools here in California. So you went to Fullerton and you obtained a master's degree in library science from San Jose State University. That is part of the same system. I went to the Long Beach one, by the way, so we have a lot in common. You are a librarian with the Los Angeles Public Library. And since 2009, you have overseen the library's historic photo collection. In addition to authoring books on Anne Vorschach and Jane Russell, you have also written numerous issues of the My Little Pony comic book series. That is incredible. A little unexpected. <laughs> well, I, st I started writing them when my daughter was three years old. So it was really cool when she was in preschool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was very cool with the preschool set back then. I wrote a Star Trek comic last year as well. So you my did? writing career has been incredibly weird. Yes. I wrote about, I wrote a Ferengi comic. <laughs> yeah. So I have a really weird writing career. That's a whole lot of genres right there. Yeah. Are you Completely. a Trekkie? It is. No, like, I appreciate it. I used to watch it. My grandma loved the show. I've seen a fair amount of it, but no, I wouldn't call myself a Trekkie, but the opportunity came up and I'm a researcher. So I did a whole lot of Star Trek research and wrote a 40 page Ferengi comic. Well, speaking of your writing career, why Jane? As you mentioned, so I had written one other book on Anne Dvorak and that was this insane odyssey that took about 15 years. So I had discovered Anne when I was in my twenties and the book came out, I think just shy of my 40th birthday. Once the book was published, I decided that I was never going to write another Hollywood biography again. And a few months later, I thought, well, maybe it wasn't so. It's like childbirth. Eh, maybe it wasn't so bad. And so I was trying to figure out who to write about next. And I didn't know. So I went to my publisher and said, yeah, I think I might want to do another book. And it was the University Press of Kentucky. I said, who should I do? And they said, have you thought about Jane Russell? And I said, no, I hadn't. But I love her. And Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. I'd seen that and I'd seen The Outlaw. So I'd seen her her best movie and quite mm -hmm. possibly one of the worst movies ever made in The Outlaw. And 
realized I didn't actually know much about her and that I hadn't actually seen really any of her movies. And then I was really surprised to discover that other than her autobiography, nobody had ever written about her. So there had never been a full-length biography, which I thought was absolutely astounding because she is somebody that has a tremendous amount of name recognition. Once I started delving into her life a little bit, and with Anne Dvorak, she was incredibly underdocumented as far as movie stars go. So it took a lot of digging. Jane was the opposite. Jane from the age of 19 was so hyper-documented that it was the other problem that there was too much, but I liked the idea of having all this material to wade through. And, and I've been a huge Marilyn fan since I was 14. Goddess was the first biography I ever read on a movie star. And at the time thought, wow, it'd be really cool to write something like this. The idea of being able to, in a very small way, contribute to Marilyn's scholarship through Gentlemen of Her Blondes mm-hmm. was also pretty alluring to me. And I dove in and wrote a book about Jane Russell. So during that process, what did you discover about Jane that you really love or appreciate the most? I think there's a lot about Jane that I love. I think one of the most impressive things about her was that she was really devoid of an ego, I think, which is impressive in Hollywood. She was somebody who was incredibly confident and I think incredibly comfortable in her own skin. And even though she entered movies when she was 19 and became known around the world because of the photos that were taken for the outlaw at a very young age, she always stayed pretty grounded. She always stayed Mm -hmm. true to herself. She had friends that she had made in her youth and in high school that, that she maintained those friendships for the rest of her life. So I think that she was somebody who didn't let Hollywood go to her head and it didn't let Hollywood mess with her head, I think is just so impressive. And the fact that she wasn't threatened by other actresses or other women, I think is really impressive because I think women tend to be pitted against each other, particularly when we're younger. So the fact that she wasn't threatened and she could forge really strong friendships with women and genuinely want to see other women succeed. And I think would sometimes push other women to succeed, whether they wanted to or not. I think it's just really an inspiration. And so I think sometimes I do find myself trying to like channel my inner Jane Russell and just be comfortable in my own skin. And I think that's something we could all benefit from. Mm -hmm. So your book was published in 2021? Yes, it was published at a terrible time. (laughs) So it was in June of 2021. It was, I think there was a week after we all got our vaccinations where we Mm -hmm. went out. So that's when my book came out. So I did get to have a book release party in June of 2021 at Larry Edmonds in Hollywood. And then we all went back in our houses. Oh, great. Um, so then I ended up, yeah. So then I ended up doing all of my publicity from my living room. So you never got a chance to meet Jane as part of this work. And I never did. Jane passed away in 2011 and I started working on the book oh, probably around 2014. There used to be a Hollywood collector show in Los Angeles. It was at the Beverly Garland Hotel for years in Studio City, and then it moved over to the Burbank Marriott. And she was at one of those shows. And I did stand there staring at her for a while with my close friend, Darren, and both of us said, I don't know what to say to her. So I didn't actually go talk to her, which is a regret, but I did gawk at her from across the room for a very long time. Wow. You were in the same space with her. So that's pretty cool. That's right. I breathed the same air as Jane Russell. I absolutely (laughs) did. Yes. (laughs) You said something that really intrigues me. And that is she was very grounded. She was very nice to people. I was just kind of wondering if you could tell us about her upbringing. Is that how she was raised or is that 
her personality, a little of both. What can you tell us about her childhood and her family? Because she did, like Marilyn, grow up in the Los Angeles area. Yeah, she did. I think all of us are born with our personalities. So I think a lot of that was just Jane. But she had a pretty solid upbringing. She had four younger brothers. So I think that was a big reason why she did remain so grounded because her brothers would never allow fame to go to her head. I think when she initially signed her contract with Howard Hughes to be in The Outlaw, she came home and they all went, ooh, look, it's the movie star. I think if Jane ever put on airs, they would have just given her a lot of guff. Her mother was very involved in her life. Her father, unfortunately, passed away when Jane was 16. So that was something tragic that happened early on, but the family really banded together. I think she had to step up and help raise the younger brothers, but I think there just was a lot of love and a lot of support growing up. I think she did feel secure. So it was, Mm -hmm. even though she lost her father, I think it was very secure. Her aunt, Ernestine, who was the sister of her mother, Geraldine, was also somebody she was very close to. And Ernestine lived out in Fontana. And Jane would sometimes go out there. Ernestine had a huge family as well. And so she had cousins that she hung out with. She had a lot of family. And I think they always remained very close. And it was a tight unit. And I think it just gave Jane a very solid home base so that she always had an anchor. And growing up, she grew up in the San Fernando Valley primarily, but she did know a lot of people in the film industry or she had friends whose parents worked in the film industry. So I don't think it was anything she was ever incredibly impressed with because she grew up around it. And so I think, yeah, again, she just had this anchor and I think she always felt very secure and that served her well later on when she did have a Hollywood career. How did she get discovered by Howard Hughes or Howard Hawks? Jane's mother had been an actress. She had performed on the stage and then had stopped acting once she got married and started having kids. And I think deep down, she always wanted Jane to be an actress. When asked why she named Jane, Jane Russell, she said, I I thought Jane Russell would look great in lights. So that was something that I think her mom always nudged her toward from a pretty young age. And Jane always wavered over whether she actually wanted to act or not. So she did some acting in high school. She learned to play a piano at a young age and was a musician. Her and her brothers would perform. And then once she graduated from high school, she was a terrible student, I think barely graduated. She went to the Max Reinhardt School of Acting, I think at her mother's encouragement, and then ended up ditching and going bowling. There was a bowling alley across the street that was actually the old Warner Brothers studio, which is now KTLA. Yeah, I know exactly where you're talking about. That like classical building. For for a period in the early 40s, a Warner brother-in-law had converted part of it into a bowling alley. And that was right across (laughs) the street from Max Reinhardt. So she would just ditch the class and go bowling. And then she also took some acting classes under Marie Alspinkaya had an acting school in Hollywood. So she did that, but was always like fairly eh, a little bit half-hearted. So ultimately what happens is one of Jane's friends is working at a restaurant on Hollywood Boulevard and is discovered by Tom Kelly, the photographer. So Tom Kelly was always on the lookout for models. And so he hired a friend of Jane's to do modeling for clothing. And the friend said, ah, you should see my friend and brought Jane. And he looked at Jane and said, oh, yes, Jane was a glamazon. So she was always incredibly statuesque. And Tom Kelly immediately hired Jane to do modeling for clothing. And he taught Jane how to pose. He told her if it's not uncomfortable, it's not going to look good or something along those lines. <laughs> Tom Kelly would have photos of his models hanging up on the wall. He had a photo of Jane hanging up and it wasn't a body shot. It was like this very 
tightly framed shot of her, like almost snarling, because Jane could could look very intense if she wanted to. And an agent named Levis Green would come to Tom Kelly's studio, scoping out the models for potential roles. And he walked into Tom Kelly's studio, and at the time, Howard Hawks and Howard Hughes were casting The Outlaw and were looking for unknowns, and he saw Jane's face on the wall and told Tom Kelly, who's that? And Tom Kelly said, she's a nice girl. I'm not going to tell you who she is. And he swiped the photo, showed it to Hawks and Hughes, who said, get her in here. And eventually, Tom Kelly relented, gave up her contact information, and she went in and auditioned for The Outlaw. And that was how she got the role. Wow. What a way to be discovered. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely. incredible. Yeah. Wow. Almost like Schwab's drugstore. Pretty darn close. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit earlier of Jane's photos for The Outlaw. Talk a little bit more about that, please, and the publicity surrounding the picture and Jane Russell. Oh, gosh. The photos, I think, have completely outlived the movie, and rightfully so. Howard Hawks and Howard Hughes, they had worked together in 1932 on Scarface, the gangster film with Paul Muni and George Raft and Anne Dvorak. Eight years later decided to make another movie and they were going to do a take on Billy the Kid. It was a loose interpretation of Billy the Kid. It took a little while for them to get it off the ground. And in the meantime, MGM did their own Billy the Kid film. So at that point, Howard Hughes pivoted and said, you know what, we're going to focus our marketing campaign on Jane, on this new discovery. And he hired Russell Birdwell to do the publicity in Birdwell. He had done the search for Scarlet campaigns. He was a, a publicist who knew what to do. And so once he was told Jane is going to be the focus, he just launched into it. And initially the outlaw was going to be shot on location when Howard Hawks was the director. And when they went on location in Arizona, Russell Birdwell sent just a cadre of photographers and just said, photograph her. And Jane was a very voluptuous young girl. And so they shot her at every which angle. And she lived a pretty sheltered life at that point. These photographers are telling her, hey, Jane, bend over and pick up those pails, or they're getting on rocks and shooting down her skirt, or they're having her bounce on a horse. So she was only moderately aware of what they were doing, but those photos get released and they go on magazine covers around the world. The Life magazine photos are a little bit more tasteful than some of these other magazines. (laughs) And the photos absolutely resonate because Jane was gorgeous. And so for the Uh next couple of years, as the outlaw kind of dragged on because Howard Hughes fired Howard Hawks, directed it himself, and then just ended up dragging his feet and getting involved in the aerospace war effort. Jane's full-time job just became posing for photos. And so thousands of photos are taken of Jane. They are splashed all across magazines. Jane becomes known as the motionless picture actress because no movies are coming out. Everybody knows who she is because of her photos. Oh, and I was wondering why she was called that. Yeah, she becomes prominently known because of the photos in early 1941, but doesn't have a movie come out. The Outlaw gets a limited release in 43, a little bit wider of release in 46, but isn't widely released until 50. So for the first few years of her career, no, there are no Jane Russell movies. There's just a lot of Jane Russell photos. And then very famously, George Harrell is brought in and shoots Jane lounging on a haystack with her shirt pretty low cut, wielding a gun and snarling. Those photos get blown up on billboards and become the hallmark of the marketing campaign once the film is a little bit more widely released in 46. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the photos have definitely outlived, outlived the movie. I don't think a lot of people have seen the movie, but they've all seen the photos. And even when 
Jane's autobiography is published in 1985. I don't know that she really wanted to have one of those George Harrell haystack photos on the cover, but her publisher said, yeah, we really need to put one of those on the cover. So they did. Um, and I was <laughs> very- iconic. Oh, they're absolutely iconic. I don't know if Jane would have appreciated me delving into her life and writing a book on her. I think she felt like she'd been talked about enough. But the one thing I did out of respect for Jane was I did not put a haystack photo on the cover of the book. So that was one thing I wanted to do that for her was not put an outlaw photo on the cover because there is more to Jane Russell than just those photos. That is right. Yes. Yeah. How did her career change after the outlaw finally came out? She finally started working more. Like I said, for the first few years, it was mainly taking photos. She ended up marrying Robert Waterfield, who was the Mm -hmm. quarterback for the Los Angeles Rams. So they had started dating. They knew each other in high school and started dating after he had graduated. She got married and actually walked out on her contract for Howard Hughes. And once he enlisted in the army, she went with him and was stationed in the South. She tried being a housewife for a while, and that didn't go so great. Once the Outlaws released, I don't even know if it really does that much for her career. What ultimately happens is she gets cast in The Pale Face, opposite Bob mm-hmm. Hope, which comes out in 1948, and she's great. It is it is a very just Jane Russell role, where mm-hmm. she is just, just snappy and funny and tough and awesome. And so from there, her career finally starts to take off and Howard Hughes ends up getting a controlling interest in RKO. And he finally starts casting her in things. He wanted the outlaw to be her debut and yet didn't release the damn thing for years. And so finally, once he got it out there, she made one other movie, Young Widow, that was a Hunt Stromberg film, which was not suited for her at all, especially at that young age to do a super dramatic role. So when she does the pale face, she hits her stride and producers and directors can see, okay, this is what this woman is capable of. Speaking of her career and when she started to get big and have more films, what do you think her home life was like after she really became famous? Yeah, I think her home life was always a little bit rocky. So she married Robert Waterfield, who was a football player. I think he was always pretty jealous. I think once she started making movies, he was always concerned that she might've been roving, which early on she absolutely wasn't. And so I think, I think it was always, it was always contentious. So I think Mm. she, once, once she had the career, she certainly embraced it. So maybe Jane didn't chase her career, but once the opportunities presented itself, she wanted it. She did try to be a homemaker for a while. So in that period in the mid forties, she was living with Bob at his mom's house in Van Nuys. And she did try to be a homemaker and she was just bored out of her mind. Like that just ultimately wasn't what Jane was about. Their marriage was pretty rocky, pretty combative. I think they were both very passionate people. I think their relationship seemed to be very fueled by kind of this animal magnetism because they were both just gorgeous people. But I think that can only sustain for so long. They did have three kids together, but I think, yeah, I think her home life wasn't always as strong as maybe she would have liked. And so after 25 years, they did end up getting divorced and she had Mm. a couple more marriages, but yeah, Mm. the home life was a little bit rocky. Talk a little bit about Jane's career in the early 1950s, just before she was cast in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. 
she did the pale face and then Howard Hughes started allowing her to be in, in more films. And she did a couple with Robert Mitchum. So she did His Kind of Woman and Macau. I think she started to get cast as this tough dame, the quintessential like film noir girl. I think she just liked having the ability to be on screen and act, but I think she felt like she wasn't maybe being pushed that much or that maybe she was going to start turning into more kind of like arm candy for her male leads. Again, she was somebody who appreciated having a career, maybe wanted roles to sink her teeth into. She loved music. She loved performing. And during that period where she wasn't making films, she actually started recording, doing song recording at that time. Like Kay Kaiser brought her on and she performed. And so she launched her music career really early on. People may not realize that. And she loved Hmm. that. So she definitely wanted to do musicals. She does perform in Montana Bell, which is a dreadful movie, boring with George Brent, but she does get to perform a little bit. She does a song called The Gilded Lily, which is absolutely a highlight of it. But she seldom would go to Howard Hughes and say, hey, cast me in this type of thing. So yeah, I think she was very well known. She was very well paid because if Howard Hughes loaned her out to another studio, he made sure he squeezed her. I don't know if she was like a huge movie star. I would say she was a very well known, maybe not a huge box office draw, but very well known. And that is just that momentum that Russell Birdwell generated with those outlaw photos carried her through the entire decade of the 1940s, which is pretty astounding. So that once she's actually starts getting put into films and really starts getting that Hollywood treatment, like you look like a cow, my God, like she is stunning. Yeah, tons of name recognition and and finally starts to have that career, which is amazing considering she did nothing through most of the 40s other than take pictures. That is really interesting too when we think about the amount of money that Jane Russell made for Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and the amount of money Marilyn Monroe made for Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. What was that discrepancy there? Oh God, I think Howard Hughes I think charged like 200000 for Jane to be in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and Marilyn was just under contract, right? That was like 500 a week, wasn't it? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And I think Jane got 100000 of that 200000 It was something like that. She got a nice big cut of it. Yeah, Howard Hughes definitely took care of Jane. And he took a long time for him to bill Fox. Fox kept saying, hey, send us a bill. How much do we owe you? And he kept not doing it. And then a few years later, after the movie was made, he was like, hey, you guys never paid me and owed me interest. And rather than fight him, he just paid the interest. So he actually made more than what was originally oh contracted goodness. for. That's yes. what we call strategic. Yes. Yeah. And he I was, don't put that past him at all. No, he was very... Howard Hughes was very, he was crazy like a fox. He was very strategic. Absolutely. The red carpet was completely rolled out for Jane. Harry J. Wilde was a cinematographer on it because Howard Hughes insisted on that. Jane brought over her hair and makeup crew. Yeah. Even though Dorothy Shaw is not the main character of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Yeah. Jane was absolutely treated like the queen when that film was being made. Well, it sounds like we all love this movie. We're all Maryland fans. We all love Jane Russell. They have a lot of parallels. They both grew up in the same area. They went to the same high school, Van Nuys High School, although Marilyn did transfer during her sophomore year to university, but they both went to Van Nuys. Jane was a couple years older, but Jane went to high school with Marilyn's first husband, Jim Doherty. And then we already mentioned Tom Kelly, the link between Tom Kelly, because Tom Kelly took the nude photos of Marilyn. And then there's also Andre Dedeanez. So let's start there. These are two homegrown 
LA girls. Yeah, absolutely. And Jane, she knew James Doherty and they actually did the acting club together. So they were in like productions together. So yeah, absolutely. There are those parallels, like the parallels with Tom Kelly. They both married athletes. Marilyn was dating DiMaggio. And so she would talk to Jane about that. So their relationship on the set of Gentlemen for the Blondes was, was absolutely fantastic. Jane was just somebody who was not threatened by other women. And that was certainly the case on the set of that movie. Jane had been discovered by Howard Hawks and he directed her screen test for The Outlaw, but he never actually directed any of the film footage that's in the movie. So he got into it with Howard Hughes and he walked off the picture before he actually was able to direct Jane. She was devastated by that because she absolutely adored Howard Hawks and looked to him as a father figure because at that point in her life, she had only lost her father a couple of years before. And so she had always been desperate to work with him again. When this opportunity came up for her to be not only directed by Howard Hawks, but in a technical or musical, it was just an opportunity that that she was just thrilled to have and she would have never done. Not that Jane ever jeopardized anything she did professionally. I think she was always the utmost professional, but she was just absolutely thrilled to be on this film. And Howard Hawks even called her and said, Janie, I have a role for you. And she said, okay, fine. When are we doing it? And he said, there's another character in this film. And depending on who plays it, it might overshadow you. And she's like, I don't care, whatever. When are we starting? It was a huge chance for Marilyn. And I think her insecurities started to really show up early on. Marilyn was getting to the set at the crack of dawn to get made up. Jane always insisted on getting eight to 10 hours of sleep every night. So Jane always would calculate the least amount of time spent getting to a film set. She would do her own makeup in the car. And once she would get there, that she would get her hair and makeup would get touched up. She would roll in an hour before she had to be on the set. Whereas Marilyn would be there really early on. But because I think of Marilyn's insecurities, she started to getting late to the set. And so Marilyn's makeup man, Whitey Snyder, saw that this was happening, went to Jane's makeup guy, Shotgun Britain, which I love the names of these makeup guys, went to sh- <laughs> went to Shotgun and said, hey, I'm starting to see that we might be having some issues with Marilyn because she's just having difficulties getting out to the set. Maybe Jane can help. And Shotgun said, hey, this is what's going on with this girl. And Jane said, oh, all right, I'll deal with it. So from then on, every morning, Jane would just knock on Marilyn's door of the dressing room that Marilyn had to fight to get. And she would just Mm -hmm. say, hey, Blonda, let's go. And Marilyn would just go, oh, okay. And she would walk out and the two of them would walk to the set together. So Jane didn't care. Jane didn't have to be the last one out on the set. The two of them would walk in together. I think she was just always super encouraging for Marilyn. If Hawks would try to direct her and if Marilyn didn't understand what Hawks was saying, Jane would just say, honey, this is what he's talking about. And I think that was one of many reasons why Hawks wanted Jane for the movie, because he felt that she could handle Marilyn that if there were any difficulties with Marilyn or if Marilyn's insecurities were getting to her, Jane could be empathetic and could be compassionate and just deal with it and shepherd it along. And she absolutely did. And she was impressed with Marilyn. She said Marilyn had the strongest work ethic. The first couple of months that they worked on the film was training, was doing choreography. And Jane would come and Jane would finish, put in her time and then go home so that she could spend time with the kids and get that 10 hours of sleep in. And Marilyn would just stay and work and work. And so she was always completely impressed with her work ethic. I think identified that she had those insecurities, knew that Marilyn didn't have the stable household that Jane had. And so was perfectly fine being a big sister and just wanted the movie to work. And so having that movie 
work meant having a strong performance from Marilyn. And you see it on the screen. When you watch any movie with Marilyn, it's really hard to not watch Marilyn the entire time. Mm -hmm. You can see how amused Jane is by Marilyn during that film. And it's actually just fun to watch Jane's reaction to Marilyn's performance. I've actually noticed that. In some cases, it doesn't even look like Jane Russell is acting. Like when Marilyn's trying to Mm -hmm. put the crown around her neck and (laughs) Jane Russell says, there couldn't possibly be any other explanation. It was just so true to life. Yeah. I've seen that. Yeah, absolutely. Their friendship really comes out on the screen. Oh, 100%. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons why that movie works as well as it does. They have chemistry. Like those Mm -hmm. two broads Mm -hmm. genuinely have chemistry and it just makes it such a joy to watch. Marilyn and Jane were co-inductees at Grauman's Chinese Theater when they put their hands and feet in wet cement. Is this something that Jane had always wanted? Do you know? I think once it happened, again with Jane, I think once anything happened, she was, oh, cool. This is a cool thing that's happening. But no, I don't think she was one to go and dream about it. Once it happened, I think she she was totally fine. And she wore like her actual shoes. I think some actresses would maybe bring smaller shoes to put in the cement. And when Jane was like, <laughs> no, I, I want these kids to come and actually put their big foot in mine and and see that that it's real. So that's the opposite of Marilyn, who as a child went to Grauman's and watched films there and actually put her hands in the cement and really dreamed about what it would be like to be a movie star someday. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But again, I think Marilyn didn't have that stability. And so I think was looking for something to make her feel like someone where again, Jane, I think just always had that very strong sense of self. And I think thought it was great that she had a film career. But yeah, never pursued it the way Marilyn did. Right around the time they were filming or just after they were filming, Jane invited Marilyn over to her house a few times. She had a Bible group and Marilyn came over a few times for that and she didn't stick with it. But there seems to be an effort on Jane's part to offer some stability or some sort of social circle to Marilyn. She had trouble sticking to any one religion, but I was wondering if you could speak about the group that Jane hosted at her house. Jane was raised to have a very strong faith. That was something that she got from her mother. Her mother would have Bible study growing up. Her mother ultimately had a chapel on this family compound. Jane's faith was very important to her. Once she started to become famous, she wasn't maybe always comfortable going out in public to go to church, or maybe just because of the filming schedule, didn't necessarily have the time to go to church. There were a lot of people in the industry, particularly people that maybe were younger and came from outside of Los Angeles, who maybe wanted a place to practice their faith. And so she started this Hollywood Christian group, and they would actually go to different houses. I think each month or however often they had it, um, it would be held at someone else's house. And as far as I know, Marilyn only went once. Jane, I think, again, identified that Marilyn maybe would benefit from having that faith in her life and from having something to anchor her and having stability. And so invited her. Along those same lines, Jane started an organization called WAIF. And Marilyn did work with her on that. I was wondering if you could talk about that because they were both very interested in helping children. One of my favorite things that I learned about Jane was researching her WAIF organizations. Jane was unable to have children. Around 1942, she did have an abortion and it was a back alley thing because it wasn't legal or safe. 
she wasn't able to have children after that because it went horribly wrong. So she did end up adopting three kids. It wasn't an easy experience to do that. And her second child that she adopted, Tommy, she had gone to the UK. She was invited for the command performance to meet the queen. So while she was over there, she was visiting orphanages. And this was right after World War II. And so the orphanages were filled to the max. And a lot of the children that were in there had been fathered by GIs, by American GIs. And so she wanted to find a child to adopt, but there were a lot of hurdles. And so she wasn't able to. And the press caught wind that she was doing. And she said, yeah, I'm trying to adopt a kid and I'm having trouble. There was actually an Irish woman living in London who had a child that kind of fit the description of what Jane was looking for, a boy who was approximately three years old. This woman didn't feel she could care for her son and thought Jane could. And so got into Jane's hotel room with this kid and said, will you take my son? Jane, because she was a movie star, she was able to get the paperwork, expedite all of that, get the red carpet treatment, as she would said. She went through all the proper channels to be able to take this kid back to the States, but it ended up just becoming a huge controversy. And there was a member of parliament that decided to get some publicity for himself, but became this international incident about her taking this Irish kid, because I think there actually was a black market for Irish kids at the time. The FBI, Hoover, to appease parliament, opened up a file on her. It ended up being a huge ordeal for the birth parents of this child. And she was so disgusted with all of it that she said, you know what, I'm in a position, I have the celebrity that I'm in a position to do something to be able to help these kids in need. She ended up starting her WAIF organization and what WAIF did, they became a fundraiser for international social services. They raised money to help the ISS be able to have enough staff to be able to process paperwork and to be able to get kids adopted. She would go and lobby Congress to raise immigration caps so that more kids could come into the country. And that ended up being something that she devoted much of her life too. So WAIF was around for 40 plus years. At some point they switched from adoption to focusing on the foster care system here in the United States. It wasn't lip service. She was always incredibly involved in it and everything she did from that point on was for WAIF. Oh, I'm going to go film Mamie Stover in Hawaii. Oh, I can start a chapter for WAIF over there. Oh, Howard Hughes wants me to do publicity. Okay, then he can pay for my plane ticket so I can go to Washington, D.C. and go talk to this congressperson. So that was something she was very involved in. I don't think Jane and Marilyn had a lot of contact once gentlemen prefer blondes rap, but I think there was a connection there. And I think if she needed something from Marilyn, particularly on behalf of Wave, she wasn't shy to ask. And I think Marilyn was just as quick to oblige. That's something that I just love about her. And and I hope Wave is something that people will, if they do read the book, I hope that's something that'll make an impression on them and that they'll walk away from it remembering that was something that Jane did. She really put her money where her mouth was. Yeah, it's an incredible story. It's certainly having an impression on me. Sure is. Yeah. yeah. Jane's later career, she transitioned into television. Maybe you can just talk a little bit about her career later on in life. She only made movies into the early 60s. There might have been some scattered ones throughout the 60s. She did a little bit of television, not a whole lot. She did end up signing a 20-year contract with Howard Hughes, where he paid her $1,000 a week, basically, whether she was working or not. But by that time, he just 
adored her and appreciated her so much that she got this thousand dollars a week, even though she wasn't working. And as I mentioned, Jane loved to sing. I think even more than acting, more than making movies, she absolutely loved to sing. And she traveled the world singing at one point. She paired up with Rhonda Fleming and Della Russell and Beryl Davis and Connie Haynes. And they would record like Christian gospels or Christian pop songs. And so they recorded a few albums and they would travel the world mm. performing these songs. Mr. Blackwell, if you remember, designed gowns. He designed gowns for them. She also ended up going onto the stage. So she only performed on Broadway once. She was actually in Company, Sondheim's Company. And that was a lot of pressure and a little bit traumatic, but she got through it. But she mainly did like smaller stock theaters. So she did do a lot of theater later on. Again, scattered television here and there. And then constantly had her cabaret show. So even the last few years, she was living up in Santa Maria and thought it was boring as all hell. So she went to a local hotel. <laughs> And said, can I just perform so I could give the old people in this town something to do? And that was something she did literally right up until I think the week she died, was performing her cabaret show up in Santa Maria, which I really am sorry that I never got to go see her perform in that. Do you feel like Marilyn impacted Jane's career or that Jane impacted Marilyn's career? How do you feel like they impacted each other? Because it just Gosh, I wish they had made more movies together. They just seem perfect together and yeah, they're remembered uh, well together. Yeah. And I think for that reason, I think it is fair to say that, yes, they did impact each other's career because of that movie. Marilyn's star was definitely ascending, but Gentlemen for Blondes just absolutely shoots Marilyn into the stratosphere and rightly so because she's so incredible in it same with Jane it's the best film Jane ever made and I think Jane agreed it was Jane's personal favorite film that along with Fuzzy Pink Nightgown Jane absolutely loved that film Jane is definitely remembered for the outlaw and for the photos from the outlaw but I do think she's beloved because of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. When I started writing the book, as I mentioned, I hadn't seen a lot of Jane's films, but I loved Jane. And that was really mm -hmm. based on the strength of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And I think that film is just an absolute, just cinema legacy for both of them. So I do think they would have had different careers had mm -hmm. they not ended up making that film together. And again, just playing off of each other so well is just what makes that film so memorable. You know what I love about it is that movie came out in 1953 and it had two strong female leads. You didn't see that very often then. You don't see it very often now. No, you don't. When you really stop and think about it. Yeah, it's incredible to have this film with these two women who just completely carry this picture. I do think it's the greatest buddy film. I don't think it's the greatest female buddy film. I think it's the greatest buddy film ever made. I'm going to agree with you on that because yeah. I really like it. Yeah. My daughter's about to turn 13. And during lockdown, our family pandemic project was to do a podcast called Little Miss Movies, where we would make her watch movies. And then we uh -huh. talk about them. And at the end of it all, my big takeaway is that my daughter really doesn't like movies that much. But <laughs> she's your daughter. <laughs> she's my daughter and my husband's daughter. But she will watch Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. She will sit down and watch that anytime. So even my surly teenager has no problem watching Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. It is a masterpiece. There's no question yeah. it's a masterpiece. So, Christina, I have something really interesting. You know, I'm a big collector of Marilyn Monroe's personal property. Mm -hmm. I have two of her personal phone books from 1962. Okay. That was her final year of life. And Jane Russell's contact information is in both of those phone books. Oh, that's going to make me cry. Really? Yeah. 
Oh, I love that. Yeah. These phone books are amazing. They're probably one of the best additions to my collection ever because you can go through and just really see who those people were in Marilyn's life that were important to her, as well as who cleaned her house and mowed her lawn yeah. and dry cleaning and those types of things, yeah. all different types of contacts in there. But Jane Russell is in both books and that was 1962. So almost a decade yeah. after Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Yeah. What was their relationship like, do you think, through the years after Gentlemen Prefer Blondes? Jane never claimed to be super close to Marilyn after. But I think Jane said that Marilyn, I don't think, was ever super close to anyone for an extended period of time. But again, I think if they needed to reach out to each other for any reason, that connection was there. I do think Jane probably wish she would have maybe been able to have had a closer relationship with her. And she she said, I think right around the time that Marilyn died, if I'm remembering correctly, it might have even been that day, Jane had been hanging out on the beach with some girlfriends, and they were all just kvetching about the men in their life. And Jane stopped and thought about Marilyn and thought, God, it would be so nice if Marilyn could just be here and just have a support system like I have. And I think she she passed away shortly thereafter. And I think Jane thought, hey, God, maybe had I reached out to her, mm. may, maybe it could have been different. So yeah. I think Jane always held Marilyn like, very close to her heart. And because Jane was made the film with her, had such a strong relationship with her during the filming, and because Jane lived until 2011, she got interviewed all the time. And mm. He so often got asked the same questions about Marilyn over and over again, and was always happy to talk about Marilyn, was always happy to answer those same questions, never said a cross word about Marilyn ever, only had the highest praise for her, which I think is so incredible. In that last interview that Marilyn gave for Life magazine, she talks about the incident of not having a dressing room, having to put mm -hmm. up the fight yes. because yeah. she was the blonde, and then mentions Jane and said, but by the way, Jane was quite wonderful to me. One of the last things that she talks about publicly, she mm -hmm. actually mentions Jane. So yeah. I think, yes, there was that genuine connection. When Marilyn got divorced from DiMaggio, Jane did send her a letter reaching out, just wanting to make sure she was okay. So Jane absolutely genuinely cared about her. And I think it's beautiful that mm -hmm. Marilyn had Jane's contact information. Yeah. That's lovely. Right at the end. I do hope they talked to each other occasionally. I don't know that they did, but I certainly hope so. Because again, Jane just was supportive and genuinely, I think, wanted the best for the people in her life. She really did. Mm -hmm. It just sounds like there's a genuine warmth there between the two. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you could see it on film and the way that they interacted mm -hmm. with each other and the behind the scenes and on the set stories. And clearly yeah. there was a friendship to the end. Yeah. I Really appreciate your comments about Jane Russell and speaking about Marilyn. And I often, for lack of a better phrase, I feel bad for certain stars that were in films with Marilyn and they get put into a position where all they get asked about really is questions about Marilyn. And they were stars in their own right. Huge yeah. celebrities, film stars, movie stars. And Marilyn is so big and has been so big that people just want to glom on to anything that has something to do with Marilyn. And like I said, I just feel bad sometimes for people. They were a movie star in their own right. It wasn't just because they were Marilyn Monroe's co-star. I do see that Jane was the type of person, as you say, no ego, happy to talk about Marilyn, who was her friend. Whereas yeah. other people on set may have been a lot more frustrated with Marilyn because she was late or she flubbed her lines, you know, these yeah. types of things. And so 
that's just a testament, yet another testament to the type of person mm -hmm. that Jane was and the friendship that they had. Yeah. For Jane, it was a double whammy because she knew Howard Hughes so well. <laughs> He's another one that people are desperate to know about. So she got right. asked about him ad nauseum as well and never said a crossword about Howard Hughes either. I think it's a total testament to Jane that I think she did have a genuine friendship with him. And I don't know that he had very many just close, genuine friendships in his life. And so I mm -hmm. think she, he certainly frustrated her at times. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And there were a couple of times where she threw down the gauntlet with him. With Marilyn and Howard Hughes, Jane did have just these very genuine, sincere friendships with them, which I think is absolutely fascinating. And mm -hmm. yeah, and she was till the day she died, would always was always happy to talk about him and never said a crossword about either one of them. That's amazing. Yeah. This may be a question you've never been asked before. Ready? I'm ready. If you could pull Marilyn and Jane right out of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and put them into a few modern day films as two female leads, mm -hmm. what would those films be? I'm going to cheat a little bit. These days, I tend to watch more TV shows. TV shows is fine movies. too. Okay. TV okay. shows is fine too. I think I would love to put them in the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Really? Okay. <laughs> Because I, I could see Marilyn as Midge and Jane as Susie. Really? And I think okay. it, Susie is such a strong, no-nonsense character, and yeah. that's Jane. And I'm sorry, I would love to see Marilyn be a foul-mouthed stand-up comedian. <laughs> I have to admit, I've never seen that show, but I constantly hear about oh, how good it is. Constantly. It's... So now I'm going to be watching it through the lens of this conversation with Marilyn and Jane. <laughs> As the two leads. Please do. Please. And now that the show has completely wrapped up, I can say with confidence, yes, watch it because it comes to a satisfying conclusion. Can Absolutely. I just say thank you for not saying the obvious movie, Thelma and Louise? Thelma and Louise. <laughs> oh, that did immediately cross my mind. And I'm like, no, that is not the only, <laughs> not the only female-centric film to come out besides Gentlemen Prefer Blots. Exactly. Well, you know what else popped into my head was Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. Oh. Such a good film. Such a I've good never film. actually seen it. I've never seen it. Oh, it's a good one. Cult classic. Nice. But yeah, I'm sticking with Mrs. Maisel, I think. I've just enjoyed this conversation so much because, like I said at the beginning, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is what started my journey to loving Marilyn and Jane is such a big part of that. So if you love gentlemen prefer blondes, you love Jane too. This has been great. It has been really fantastic. Thank you, Christina. Is there anything that you want to share that we didn't touch on that you wanted to get across to our followers about Jane or Marilyn? I encourage people to go watch some of Jane's other films because yes, gentlemen prefer blondes is the pinnacle. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, but no, Jane, she is an absolute joy to watch. There's a movie that she did with Jeff Chandler called Foxfire, which I don't think enough people know about. I think she's just absolutely fantastic. And I think it was the last three strip Technicolor film to be made. So it's just that gorgeous, insane, saturated Technicolor. So I encourage people to seek that one out. The two she made with Robert, her and Robert Mitchum, oh my God, they are mm -hmm. just, th those two just light the screen on fire. His kind of woman 
it's a hot mess because as Howard uses fingerprints all over it. But Vincent Price is a hoot in it. And he was a great friend of Jane. So again, they just have great on-screen chemistry together. So yeah, I absolutely encourage people to go seek out some of Jane's other films because that woman was a movie star. That just comes across mm -hmm. on the screen. She didn't do a lot of films, but I think she certainly makes the most of it. So absolutely go check out Jane. Great advice. Did Jane and Robert go to school together? Did they go to Van Nuys School? No, not with Robert Mitchum. I think he was, oh God, he had some connection to Doherty. I don't know if they were like enlisted together, but there was a connection there. Because at one point, the three of them did an interview together. Yeah, I remember seeing that as a kid. I thought it was high school. I guess I'm wrong. No, I want to say they were like in the military together or something. But Mitchum knew Doherty somehow. But yeah, Jane didn't know Mitchum until later. Until okay. They started making movies together. Yeah. Christina, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today. And just a reminder for our listeners, Christina's book is Mean, Moody, Magnificent, Jane Russell and the Marketing of a Hollywood Legend. And I can honestly say that I never thought in my lifetime that I would ever tussle with Russell. But here we are. <laughs> here we are. And it's been such a pleasure and such a joy. Be sure to give us a five-star rating if you enjoyed this interview. If you could leave a comment, that would help. The whole goal of this show is to get old Hollywood out there, make sure people know the real Marilyn, and that's all we ask. Remember that you can follow us on Instagram at All Things Marilyn Podcast, and you can also email us if you have questions, comments, thoughts, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes. We are at allthingsmarilynpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time on All Things Marilyn. Good night, man. Bye-bye. You loved on the screen, and that's the one thing that survived, you know. I realize more and more the responsibility, but you do miss sometimes just being able to be completely yourself and someplace, and people just know you as another human being.